RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather podcast. We are here in the Radio Influence studios today, taking a little break from Lawfather headquarters. Uh, we're doing a little bit of renovating to make a better experience for the podcast and for our clients, uh, for the law firm. So we're right here. Uh, so big shout out to Radio Influence. Uh, make sure to check out all their shows and uh, check out our social media. Just search for at the Lawfather. You'll find all of our social media out there. And... As we uh, sit here today, it is September 13th. Uh, those of you who have not lived under a rock for the last uh, 20 years are well aware of September 11th of 2001. And being that today is September 13th, that means that September 11th was two days ago. And it was the 20th anniversary of those attacks. I don't know if anniversary is the right word for it because usually that's a celebratory word, but Anyway, it happened 20 years ago, and you may wonder, okay, why is the law father talking about this on a legal show? Well, there is uh, something that I find very interesting from the legal perspective, and just remember, uh, as I've said in the past several times, a lot of times when we have things that are really interesting from the legal perspective, they're usually something bad from the real life perspective. Okay, um, this definitely uh, falls in that category. Probably would be the quintessential example of that. But here we are, and there is actually a lawsuit that was filed. It was filed a few years ago now, um, and it's not as many years ago as you might expect it to have been. But there is a lawsuit that has been filed or had been filed. Uh, from survivors and heirs from, uh, or, or survivors of those of the attacks from September 11th. And who is that lawsuit against? Well, that lawsuit is against Saudi Arabia. So here we have, we have Saudi Arabia and we have um, all of these plaintiffs. Now, to put a little bit of perspective as to the vast amount of plaintiffs in this particular action, Okay, and it's not one of those. If you ever have seen legal documents and uh, pleadings and such, there'll be two words at all that'll that'll sometimes appear for the plaintiff or the defendant. And basically, it is saying that we have a group of people, and we're not going to name every single one of them. So we're going to name them somewhere else. But in the caption, which is where you have your plaintiff, defendant, what court you're in, what the court case number is, you're going to have say Joe Smith at all versus. Uh, Jane Doe. Okay. That's where you typically see that. Uh, they didn't do that in this case, which I find interesting only to the tune that there were approximately, I believe, 131 pages of plaintiff names. Okay. Typically, this takes up, say, the first maybe quarter of a piece of paper. All right. Usually, actually, a little bit less than that. But, you know, if we had to guess high, we're going to say the first quarter of a piece of paper. 131 pages. So just put the sheer volume of this in perspective. Okay. This lawsuit was filed in 2017. All right. So you may sit there and go, well, this happened in 2001 and this lawsuit was filed in 2017. Why is that? Well, in 2016, our United States Congress passed 
a uh, passed an act called the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. And actually, this would be something that President Obama, President Obama was our president at the time, he vetoed. And it was the only time during his presidency that Congress acted to override the presidential veto. So what this says, and, and I'm going to read exactly how this is worded is to provide civil litigants with the broadest possible basis consistent with the constitution of the United States to seek relief against foreign countries, wherever acting and wherever they may be found that have provided material support directly or indirectly to foreign organizations or persons that engage in terrorist activities against the United States. So prior to this, there was no way to sue a foreign country. All right. Think about that. I mean, we're talking about an individual, a non-governmental entity suing a government from another country in the United States. Okay. So a lot of ramifications there. And if we dial it back just a little bit and we look at why President Obama vetoed it at the time, um, it wasn't because he had some disdain or, or some ill will towards the victims of 9-11. No, it, it was more from a pragmatic stance of what are we opening the door to? Are we opening up the door to liability on the United States? The United States does a lot of work and uh, has a lot, of, a lot of things going on throughout the world. And by enacting this act, it, do we create an avenue for liability against the United States. That's why he vetoed it. So just so that everybody is kind of clear and understanding how that comes about, that is that it was the rationale behind the veto. But anyway, Congress has the ability to override vetoes. Um, you have to have basically a, a massive supermajority of Congress to vote to override a presidential veto. So what this group of plaintiffs has done, and, and there is actually a law firm that seemingly their entire practice, they uh, counted seven or eight lawyers that are part of that practice, the entire practice is dedicated to terrorist attacks. And my guess is this is the single case that they are working on, okay? So, and it's a massive, massive case. You're talking about going after a another country, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is the actual uh, legal name for it. Uh, and, and what they are seeking, they're seeking relief against Saudi Arabia for their acts, uh, and it would be the governmental ministries and bodies, alter egos and officers, employees and agents acting within the scope of their office, employment or agency by knowingly providing material support and resources to the Al-Qaeda terrorist organization and facilitating the September 11th attacks. All right. So, and they go into some details. So let's look at what's being alleged. Okay, because uh, it gets kind of interesting. Now, what they didn't know before in 2017, a lot of the FBI files from that time were not released. What we just had over the weekend, so September 13th, it's a Monday, President Biden just released the some of the documents that the FBI had. So the allegations are this that Saudi Arabia raised, laundered, and paid substantial financial support to Al-Qaeda to fund its budget and terrorist activities, including the preparation and execution of the September 11th attacks. Saudi Arabia funded the terrorist training camps in Afghanistan where Al-Qaeda indoctrinated and taught their hijackers the skills they used to carry out the September 11th attacks. 
Saudi Arabia provided critical logistical support and resources to Al-Qaeda around the world, funding safe houses, furnishing false passport and travel documents, transferring Al-Qaeda money, weapons, and equipment across international borders and other assistance, all of which enabled Al-Qaeda to conduct the September 11th attacks. And that Saudi Arabia actively supported Al-Qaeda in its final preparations for the September 11th attacks through a network of the kingdom's officers, employees, and or agents who met with and aided the hijackers, providing them with money, cover, advice, contacts, transportation, assistance with language, and U.S. culture identification, access to pilot training, and other material support and resources. And, And so what we've kind of found out over time and through some of the release of these documents... Uh, there's a few things. One, I, from what I can tell, it, it's not believed that the actual, and, and, and we're going to split some hairs here, right? That the actual Saudi Arabian government set out and said, we are going to this to do this as a government, okay? What it seems to be more likely is that there were specific people within the government, extremely high-ranking people within the government, who were funding these activities. Okay, Now, this may come down to, were they acting what we would call, and look, you have to draw some parallels to what, what we would deal with on an everyday basis in the legal world. Were they acting, quote-unquote, within the course and scope of their duties? Right? Where do we see that? We see that where an employee does something, and whether or not, the employer is responsible for the acts of the employees. Okay. So if they were within the course and scope of their duties, the employer could be, and most likely would be responsible for the acts of the employee. Well, very similar here, right? So even if it wasn't truly a quote unquote government operation with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, if you had individuals who were representatives of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and were acting within the course and scope of their duties is very, very broad ranging topic. When you talk about course and scope of duties, okay, you can take and take whatever that employee did or whatever that government representative did and put that liability, put that responsibility onto the employer, or in this case, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. All right. So it, you know, this goes on and it talks a lot about what Saudi Arabia knew at the time and that there was uh, several things that happened in the early nineties, uh, kind of interesting to point out, especially those of us who may be a little bit younger, uh, the September 11th attacks on the world trade center by Al Qaeda were not the first time that the world trade center had been attacked. And it wasn't the first time the goal with it was to bring down the entire world trade center. Um, so, to put it in a little bit, little bit of perspective, I would have been 11 when the first attack happened. So, um, you know, that, that would be wild, you know, that little bit of disconnect there. Um, and it wasn't as major uh, of a thing. And so what it was, was Al-Qaeda took and they took a, um, a truck, parked it. There was an underground parking garage, parked it down in this underground parking garage and set a bomb off within the truck. And the idea of that bomb was to take from the bottom up and to hopefully bring down 
the, the World Trade Center. Okay, that was that was the idea behind it. Uh, it it failed at least in terms of bringing down the World Trade Center. Uh, there were people that were killed and uh, there were people that were hurt as a result of it. So, uh, and that would have been February 26th of 93. Uh, six people were killed and a thousand people were hurt in that. So, not minimizing that, but what was intended to happen didn't happen. Okay. So, it's believed that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia had a hand in that. There were other uh, instances. Uh, there were there was a bombing in Somalia that was supposed to involve U.S. troops. It just turned out that the U.S. troops um, were not exactly where, where they were supposed to be or thought to be. Um, it, that resulted in 18 deaths. So there have been several things over time. All right. Um, now let's take a look at what's been found out since then and and uh, since then because a lot of the information that we have just be, has just been released and and that came and I mentioned that there's a single law firm handling this the release of this information from what I can tell and hats off to this firm for for putting the pressure on but it seems as though they were able to leverage um, some support through the victims and, and through the the sheer force of, of this law firm that basically, the um, the thought process was and what was put out to President Biden was don't show up to ground zero on September 11th, 2021 unless you agree to release those documents. If you don't, we don't want to see you there. Okay? Um, so hats off to them for making that happen because here's what we found out. 15 of the 19 hijackers from September 11th were from Saudi Arabia. Hey, um, you know, that may not be the be-all, end-all. Okay? Um once again, we always have to look at the perspective of things. And look, stats lie, right? Uh, those of us who watch sports and um, run businesses know that you can juke stats all day long and make stats say whatever whatever you want them to say. Okay, um, so fifteen of nineteen of the, fifteen of the nineteen hijackers were from Saudi Arabia, but does that really mean Saudi Arabia knew or had a hand in it? Well, that's a whole other question. Okay, but for the perspective on this, Osama bin Laden was also a, a Saudi Arabian citizen, right? However, he had that citizenship revoked and was actually banished from the kingdom, okay? Um, so what the status of those 15 of the 19 hijackers was, no idea. Um, was, uh, was Osama bin Laden banned from the kingdom as a, as a front, Okay. We won't know. I, I don't think anybody will ever know that except for the people that were truly involved in that. And um, so that's just food for thought, okay? But it does seemingly point a really strong finger at the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. When you say 15 of 19 were from your location, you're going to say you didn't know anything at all about it. I don't think we're talking about a huge country, okay? Um, so that's that's where that falls in line. Uh, there are some allegations in here that deal with uh, the passport office in uh, Saudi Arabia, and there were supposedly some kind of markers that the Saudi Arabian government were, was putting into the passports of specific hijackers, and somehow it would key off security within Saudi Arabia that would allow these people to pass through some security parts within Saudi Arabia. However, it was hidden in a way that other countries, including the U.S., had no ability to know and understand that there were these secret markings within. Okay, um, So 
that is where we stand now. That lawsuit is ongoing, and I would expect that lawsuit to last for a very, very long time. Okay, um, you know, if uh, we get some updates on that, I, I will definitely let you know. But what we have is a, a civil lawsuit against the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. All right, and to show kind of how long uh, things can take, there was uh, one of the hijackers, or, or one of the they're calling him one of the masterminds of this, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, and there were four others that have been at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, they've been there since I believe 2012. Okay, so it's been there for uh, excuse me, um, 2002. Nope, sorry. Take that all back. Run that tape back. They were arraigned in 2012. Okay, um, arraignment is the first step in the criminal process, and they are set for pretrial hearings that may begin in 2022. Uh, it turns out that uh, they wanted to give some time in between, um, and it's a military commission. It's not a civilian trial. It's a military commission, um, seemingly for essentially war crimes, and uh, so the military is going to handle that. A military commission is essentially the same as a trial. It is just done in the military versus on the civilian side. Um but they uh, keep extending this out because apparently the U.S. Uh, subjected, and I'm going to just read the exact quote from the story here, is that uh, the U.S. subjected the men to enhanced interrogation techniques. Yeah, That's just a nice way of saying apparently we tortured them. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was justified. Probably was justified. Um, but I guess they would rather uh, put some time in between that and an actual trial. So that's still ongoing. Uh, like I said, that is not slated to even really begin into until, until 2022. Okay. 21 years past the date that the, uh, September 11th attacks happened. Okay. So that, that kind of gets you caught up on where the court process is on it. And, uh, as I say, as I've said several times, I said it from the beginning here, really bad situations in real life do bring up really interesting topics on the legal side. Um, so, it, it, you know, hats off to all the men and women who um, lost their lives in the attacks and the uh, NYPD and uh, FDNY who responded to that. Uh, those of you, and by no means does uh, 60 Minutes sponsor this show. <laughs> um, kind of cool if they did, but they don't. But anyway, um, see if you can find the piece that they did on September 12th, uh, this past Sunday. Really, really good piece uh, on mostly on the FDNY and their response. Um, just key takeaway to before we uh, wrap up with a listener question here. But they had a lot of the command staff on, or the, a lot of the the surviving command staff on, and they were interviewing them twenty years later. And one of them was asked, and it was one of the ones who was doling out assignments to these firefighters. Did any one of those firefighters? ever say no or, or ever say that they weren't going to do something uh, at that time. And he said there was not one person who turned down any assignment and they all knew um, how bad it was going to be. Uh, although um, it, these were steel, um, steel skyscrapers and in the history of the world, fire has never brought down a steel skyscraper. Okay. Until September 11th. So, they had they were working off of what they knew at the time uh, and to them 
nobody knew that those towers were going to fall. Uh, and actually, if you watch that that 60 Minutes, you'll find out that there was actually someone out there who, uh, there was some kind of city engineer who alerted the chief of the EMTs that one of the towers was leaning and it was going to come down. Um, something that was probably imperceptible to somebody other than an engineer who would know to look for that type of thing. Because, you know, hey, the fire guys, they're looking at how do we get people out and the fire and not necessarily trained on on how a building looks because an engineer, well, that's what they do, okay? Um, and the message was was relayed to the the head of the department. Well, based on the video, it appears that the message was relayed about half a second before the first tower fell. So um, kind of food for thought, but take a look at that. It really, really, really well done. And um, that is the legal side of that. All right. So let's change gears here. Let's answer a listener question. All right. And the question is this. When should I hire a car accident lawyer? Hey, that is a great question. Okay. And the answer is really simple. It is better to hire a car accident lawyer or car accident attorney as quickly as possible after the crash. Okay, now that may sound callous and that may sound like a plug, okay? But here's the reality, right? And, and this is true in any area of law. The longer something goes on, right, before somebody investigates it, the more the evidence is lost, okay? In a criminal trial or in a criminal case, right, the longer something goes before somebody investigates it, right, the, the less evidence there is. So... You can apply that same theory to a car crash. The longer you wait, the more the evidence goes away. Take a good example for you. Commercial truck crashes. Okay, we see those from time to time. And all cars these days have what's called an event data recorder. And, you know, you have to get an expert to pull it and, and get the data and understand what the data tells you. But a lot of times it shows you the speed, the braking, whether or not somebody had their seatbelt on, the, the longitudinal forces, the latitude forces, the directional G-forces, you name it, this data is in these event data recorders. And a lot of times on commercial accidents and commercial crashes, they're pretty severe. So a lot of times we'll tell the trucking company, hey, you can't put that truck back into service because we want the ability to do an inspection on that truck. Okay. Now, if you don't hire a lawyer right away, that truck's going to go back in service and evidence is going to be lost forever. Okay. And, and look, I can tell you, I had a case. We'll, we'll just, I'll answer it like this. Okay. I had a case. Clients called us the day after the crash happened. They were hit by a garbage truck. Okay. And whole family, bad, bad crash. And there were allegations from the defendant driver that our clients had made some sort of improper driving, you know, maybe cut them off. Okay. And that's how the crash really happened. Not that the garbage truck driver wasn't paying attention and rear ended my clients. All right. So we had that aspect to it. Now, because they hired us right away the next day, we were able to put a hold on that truck. Now we had to go to court, right? We actually, we started out our court battle against the defendant basically a week or two into us getting the case because we had to file an emergency petition and injunction to have that truck held because we had to get 
a specialized expert from another state to come in because of the type of truck, right? So sometimes there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle that you have to put together. Long story short, okay, we were able to prove our case through dash cam video. And we only knew about that dash cam video because we were able to get access to that truck and get them to hold the truck. And we were able to dispute any thought process that our clients cut off this truck driver. Okay. So if we didn't have that, it would have been a much different scenario. However, we had full video, which showed all the driving actions and showed both cars in the same lane for a long period of time. Okay. So if, if my clients did cut off the truck driver, it was long before the video started recording. Okay. Which means it was long before the crash. We're talking long. Let's put it like this. We, we hired a biomechanical engineer and there was double or triple the amount of time it would have taken to stop that truck completely. Okay. And that truck didn't even need to stop completely to avoid the crash. All right. So when should you hire a lawyer for your car crash case? Immediately, because you don't know what evidence is going to get missed and what we need to be able to investigate to be able to be successful for you. Okay, so the sooner the better. Um, And plus, you don't really want to have conversations with the insurance companies. Number one, why waste your time? Number two, they're really not your friend, even though you're paying them and you are their customer. For the most part, they're not really looking out for you. They're looking out for their bottom lines and they want to pay you as little as possible. So keep that in mind when you're talking to them. And uh, I've had many, many clients who have thought that they were doing the right thing by playing nice with their insurance company and only to find out that they got burned in the end. Okay. So when should you as quickly as you possibly can, as quickly as makes sense for you. So whether it's the same day, next day, day after that, that is when you should. Okay. Um, but look, the reality is if you wait 30 days, you know, can it, can it hurt your case? Yes, it can. But should, should that be something that stops you from hiring a lawyer? No, absolutely not. Okay. So at any point when you feel that the insurance company isn't treating you fairly and you need some help with the process, reach out to an attorney, ideally same day, next day, day after that. And uh, we can get the ball rolling for you. We or any other uh, personal injury attorney that's out there. All right. So that is the law, law father. I can't even speak today. How about that? Let's start this over. That is the law father show for today right here from Radio Influence Studios. Big thank you to Radio Influence Studios and really liking the uh, the new digs here and Jimi Hendrix all over the wall. So it's, uh, it's a good little look. That is the Lawfather show for today. Lawfather out. <laughs>